Hi everyone, John Huang here, and welcome back to another episode of Hoofbeats, where we challenge you to solve diagnostically difficult real-world cases alongside experienced clinicians. As always, I'm here with my partner, Dr. Cindy Fang. Hello everyone, this is Cindy. For this episode, we actually will be doing a few things differently. First change, in past episodes, we've been presenting you four cases with all the details available to the original providers, usually in one continuous chunk. But over the next couple of episodes, we're going to be using cases that have been stripped down to just a few data points. We're thinking that presenting cases like this reductively will provide us a different perspective on the diagnostic reasoning process. In this episode, for example, we'll challenge you to solve the case of a man with chest pain that's presented in just six chunks of information which we'll provide to you sequentially. They are still actually pretty meaty chunks. And as usual, we encourage you to pause during the episode after each bit of information to collect your thoughts before hearing what our discussants have to say. And if you'd like to tackle this case just like the discussants did, chunk by chunk, check out the HumanDX app on your mobile device or go to the HumanDX website. We'll include links to this case in the show notes. And actually, HumanDX is dedicating next week to highlighting nothing but chest pain cases on their global morning report. So if you tackle the entire week, you should be an expert on that in no time. Second change. For this episode, we sat down with two discussants rather than just one. And we gave them this case cold. They didn't get any information beforehand, so you'll hear their reactions live. Again, we wanted to capture that stage in the diagnostic process, which is something we haven't done before. Core IM listeners, meet Dr. Patrick Cox and Dr. David Stern. Both are internists and senior faculty here at NYU. John, I must thank you for all your incessant stalking and harassing, um, I mean um, convincing, to get them to appear on this podcast. Yeah, I, I have no idea why they it took Dr. Stern, he has more clinical experience than everyone else in that room put together. And he also has the administrative influence to completely black out our unflattering depictions of him. Have you Smart. done one of these yet? No, I've not. Whatever. And we can decide that we'll just totally bail. Like, we'll say, we don't want this to be, right? Yeah, we have editorial. I mean, you have complete institutional leverage over both of us. Yeah, that's so. true. Oh, excellent. Okay. You can so we have us. nothing to worry about. <laughs> yeah. security to take care of equipment on the way out. Yeah, right? <laughs> Meanwhile, Patrick was, of course, our program director in residency, and I kind of still need him for a letter of rec if I apply to fellowship. Still, I figured if we have two wise discussions, two voices, then we don't have to talk at all. Exactly. Also, in all seriousness, uh, both Dr. Cox and Dr. Stern are leaders at our institution in medical education. And so you'll see much of what they had to say about this case uh, was metacognitive and from the perspective of teachers thinking about how reasoning ought to be taught. Should we get started? John, let's hear about your patient. Yes, absolutely. So, uh, data point number one, this is a 47-year-old man with chest pain. It's substernal, it's aching, it's worse when he walks, goes away after a while when he rests. And it started two months ago, but over the last few days it's brought on by the slightest movement, and now it hurts even to breathe. So, take a moment and decide what you think about that. And when you're ready, here is Dr. Cox giving his immediate reaction to this info, followed by Dr. Stern. hearing a youngish man um, with there are characteristics of his pain which to me sounds like progressive angina um, brought on by exertion relieved with rest 
you know, rapid uh, progression of his symptoms in the past several days. Yeah, I mean, the way he presents the case, first of all, he, he's already done some done some chunking for us and helped us, like he's already said, that things like the pace and the time, right, the rate of progression of this illness. For some for, for, for some reason, I, I, I stop. I have this automatic stop um, after age and gender. Um, so, you know, you say 47-year-old male and then chest pain. And my brain is already um, working pretty hard. Um, on a few things, uh, you know, and, and 47 to me is just, I, I understand, I understand you want this to be chest pain from a probabilistic perspective, but, um, I can't get away from, I can't, for some reason, again, I have no idea why, uh, pericardial fusion shows up in my head. Um, but it just does maybe cause the guy's just younger and we don't have any past medical history or anything. Now, Cindy, if you remember this actually, immediately led to a bit of a debate about the role of the chief complaint. So, Dr. Stern here is saying, hypothesis generation begins with the chief complaint, age, gender, primary symptom, duration. It's a very old school. Basically, this was what I was told as a med student by every older gray-bearded attending, usually as they looked sternly down at me uh, from their glasses. Yeah, while Dr. Cox pushes back against this a little bit. I often find that, and, and I often really struggle hard with the, the sort of stepping away from my anchor. I just, I, I, like, and I hear you doing that. I, I hear you, like, saying, okay, I am still in that space of undifferentiated chest pain, and I'm living there and holding on to that, even though, like, for me, it's hard. And because I must push back you a little before, because I actually like to hear the whole chief complaint in HBI, because I am fearful that in that process of generating um you know, embracing our type one thinking as we put forward the age and demographics, we're going to start to anchor and create a story that meets the uh, hemorrhagic pericardial effusion from tuberculous disease that he had, you know, got there. And so it's an interesting way with which we produce this. Mm -hmm. We do have a tendency to seek confirmation. The fear here is that simply having a working hypothesis after a chief complaint is enough to poison your subsequent information gathering. Do you try to actively fight it, or have you learned to let your mind wander before you bring it back on course? <laughs> Since you were saying... No, I don't actively fight system... I, I, don't, I, I don't fight system one. Uh, what I do is, um, is, I, I, is I will always write it down. Because, you know, in the, in the 7 plus or minus 2 world, uh, I'm a 5. Um, you know what I mean? So, uh, <laughs> the brain is... Sorry. <laughs> Sorry, there's a there's a wonderful paper from 1950. Oh, is this about working memory? It's about working memory okay. that you can carry seven plus or minus two items in your brain at any one time, and I'm a five. I'm at least one standard deviation below the mean, and I cannot I can't remember all those things. And so when I think of something, I always uh, write it in the margin. So it, it is very helpful for me uh, to simply write pericardial fusion uh, in the margin, draw a line under it. And then keep going. Then I know it's there. I don't have to worry about forgetting about it. I don't have to keep it in my working memory. I can just keep going. Then now have a longer conversation about all the other things that it's far more likely to be. Cindy, my rational brain wants to agree with Dr. Cox. Get all the information first, then get to work. But just listen to the way that Dr. Stern talks about this. His early hypothesis generation, at, at least for this case, it's driven by his fast thinking, and he describes it as involuntary, 
almost intrusive. It's like he has to acknowledge pericardial effusion for all the flaws in that theory before he can move on with his thinking. To me, it sounds a lot, I have a three-year-old at home, sounds a lot like being a parent. Uh, kid says what he wants to say, most of the time he's wrong, and doesn't matter. You are not going to be able to move on with your day unless you sit down and listen to whatever it, whatever it is he's saying, even if it's completely ridiculous. The payoff in listening, of course, is that every now and then he manages to stumble on something profound, like, uh, what if, what if the blue I see is not the blue you see? And I'm like, <laughs> are you the reincarnation of the Buddha? <laughs> so I would, uh, I would question, is it that Dr. Cox is actually not coming up with early hypotheses? Or is he simply not indulging his brain and voicing them aloud? Uh, in, is that a semi-conscious strategy that he's employing to try to move forward more objectively? Well, some of this debate is probably an artifact I mean, remember the context here. Right now, we are learners trying to improve our reasoning skills, not clinicians trying to take care of this patient. Right, Cindy. The way we're presenting this case, prompting hypothesis generation after each discrete piece of data, uh, it's a valuable way to force learners to practice certain skills. I mean, if I simply tell you, 30-year-old man with diarrhea, you know, you've got to remember to ask questions about, well, is this actually hyperdefecation? Is it actually fecal incontinence? Um, you've got to remember to ask about HIV status. If that's not available, you've got to remember the risk factors, like a history of treated STIs or anal receptive intercourse. Well, whereas if I present the entire case to you, where I simply say, well, the patient reports five to six watery, non-bloody bowel movements per day, and his social history is notable for a history of multiple STIs, those muscles aren't being engaged in the same way. It's more recall, not retrieval. Exactly. But this exercise isn't really representative of the real world, where most patients don't come in as stepwise data points. There are, to be sure, benefits in using this strategy with real patients. But as Dr. Cern says, it's selective. It's contextual. So when you say that you stop after the chief complaint in the classic sense, is that something you do for every patient in reality, or that is also a product of the academic context that we're in right now? Uh, I do it anytime I'm anytime that I've got a diagnostic dilemma. Uh, it, you know, when 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 I'm staffing cases in primary care clinic, I'm not doing that because that's not the way they come. Right? They come pre. They come with a long past medical history. I probably know them already. You know, I've seen them in clinic with the residents for years, and so there's already a fair amount of background in there. But the cases that come in report or the cases that come up from the emergency room or the cases that come up to the ward and get presented for the first time as a, you know, this is a patient who got admitted for chest pain, those people I I definitely stop after 47, I stop after male, and I stop after chest pain. Okay, second data point, which admittedly is more a lack of a, a data point. The patient was previously healthy with no medical or surgical history, and he takes no medications. This didn't really tip our discussions neither one way or the other. I mean, I think that that piece of information continues to place us um, on guards probably the night, not the right term. But again, this, the, you use the term that you're working really hard. Like working really hard to tease out where is the signal, where is the noise. And the fact that he's not carrying traditional risk factors that we may uh, attribute to coronary artery disease, to me, makes me think a little deeper and expand my differential diagnosis much, much deeper. If he was a smoker with 
diabetes and hypertension and his father was 47, you know, going to lead us down a very different route than where we have now. This is still represented to me as undifferentiated, progressive chest pain. Now, a common axiom I've heard from experienced clinicians, uh, pertinent positives are much, much more helpful than pertinent negatives. Or non-pertinent negatives. Yes, absolutely. Medical students, please remember that the next time you admit somebody with altered mental status and you start your physical exam with canned lines like regular rate and rhythm, no murmurs, rubs, or gallops. <laughs> well, I have to mention my personal bias from training at Bellevue, where a lot of patients do not have access to the healthcare system regularly. When someone comes in and tells me he doesn't have any medical problems, I wonder if he actually goes to his primary care provider every year and receives a clean bill of health. Or he actually has decades of high blood pressure hyperlipidemia, but just never diagnosed because he never sees a doctor. I mean, going back to the whole listen to your patient, but don't trust them thing again, right? Fair, fair. So uh, I will clarify, he does get sporadic <laughs> routine medical care as, uh, you know, young-ish patients are wont to do. Uh, so let's say that he has a no known medical history as opposed to an unknown medical history. Uh, third data point. He was born in Mexico and had immigrated to the United States 30 years earlier. This led the discussions to think about TB and TB-like diseases in that part of the world, which I think a lot of us will also be considering reflexively. You know, Cindy, a few weeks ago we had a a very thoughtful listener write in asking us what we thought, whether it's a really a good idea for shelf and boards questions to reinforce these kinds of reflexive associations. You mean if I see an immigrant from endemic regions, think TB? Uh, yes, or other examples, you know, how on exams or review materials, patient with bilateral hyalur infiltrates and non-caseate and granulomas on biopsy is invariably African-American. The Patient with polyarthralgia, evanescent rash, fever of unknown origin, it's a young woman. Our listener was essentially asking, are we doing a disservice to learners when we emphasize these associations repeatedly? Are we finishing medical training with too much of our knowledge base in the form of these associations? I mean, taking this case in point, the vast majority of patients who immigrated from Mexico 30 years ago and now have chest pain are not going to have TB. Yet, Seven years of medical training have made that association, at least in my head, involuntary. Again, almost intrusive. Well, I thought the rationale is that you learn the classic examples of a disease first, and then you're positioned to learn the atypicals and the rest later. Uh, yeah, of course. I That was my uh, immediate reaction to, to her question. And I, no doubt these associations, they, they come in handy to the practicing clinician. But I think the question our listener raises is a legitimate one. One wonders how much medical education should revolve around developing representative conceptualizations of diseases, particularly when it comes to ethnicity or gender. How you teach that, I guess, is more of the, the metacognitive approach to diagnostic reasoning, to acknowledge that an individual who comes from Mexico is a trigger that is sometimes deeply rooted in our uh, medical education system. Um, that triggers TB. Uh, Thirty years ago is a pretty long time to have, uh, you know, that uh, to to have him reactivate. Unless we are now about to find out some other elements of his his history that may predispose him concurrent illness or, or drugs. I sort of see um, multiple ways of 
That's a really tough question. Multiple ways of teaching and, and learning these things, none of which are perfect. I'm particularly enamored of, of symptom-based education. It's, a, it's not a very common way of teaching medical students. Um, they did it at University of British Columbia probably 20 or 30 years ago. They revised the curriculum based on, I believe there were 105 ways that the human body can be abnormal. A dyspnea, chest pain, hyperkalemia. I thought there were just 10, but okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I think, and then there was some argument about whether there were really 108 or 105. Anyway, there was this, and, and then they devised a curriculum around that so that students were learning the diseases, learning medicine based on how patients present knee pain, chest pain, right. shortness of breath. And then you dive into it from the physiology of the complaint to the biology of the disease and even into the sort of molecular genetics. I'm not sure whether it really worked well. It certainly didn't catch on so much, but um, medical schools have gone from um, discipline-based, like, you know, uh, biochemistry, physiology, anatomy, to things like organ-based um, to uh, to problem-based, a variety of different ways to get at it. Honestly, I'm surprised this didn't catch on. Organizing teaching and learning by symptom rather than by disease or organ system, actually, that seems to make a lot of sense to me. Right. Because patients always come in with the cheap complaint of, I have a problem with my kidneys and I need you to work on my AKI, right? <laughs> yeah, right. Well, but I didn't get a sense at all that he thinks this method of learning is necessarily superior or sufficient on its own. No, no, I agree. Uh, actually, he, Dr. Stern talks a lot about how experts have a nuanced understanding of certain diseases because they've studied it from different perspectives. Their knowledge is not just more extensive, it's also highly organized. It's compiled not just by diagnoses and disease associations but also by symptoms, by pathophysiology, by epidemiology, and knowledge of local prevalence, and so on. And I think ultimately, they all get you into the same space, which is a lot of experience with a lot of cases um, from a variety of directions eventually fills the gaps in your knowledge and adjusts your, your probabilities such that when you tell Patrick, well, he's from Mexico, the the trigger of TB pops into his head and then then TB triggered other things, right? I I heard him say TB and then he was like histo and he's probably thinking of, you know, know, a few other things that sort of pop along those lines. Uh, And then he backs off of that with the 30 years, you know, he sort of comes and goes. And and because he's, he's constantly adjusting that based on his knowledge and experience, and so he ends up in a space. You could start in a variety of places and get there. And the common denominator for all of them is a lot of cases, seeing a lot of cases. Fourth data point. On exam, the patient has tenderness to palpation in the epigastric and left upper quadrant regions of the abdomen. Again, here's Dr. Cox. I mean, focality is important, I think, right? Like one of the, the aspects of the case, which I uh, did not think of, um, was anatomic processes, whether it be splenomegaly that we now see in that area, leading to his progressive exertional symptoms, right? And so I'm going to anchor actually on now Mexico 
And, you know, could he have gastric cancer? And what we're witnessing now is a, a, a growth within his stomach that's leading to either physiologic changes into his cardiac output or return, or is it truly just he's uncomfortable and he can't take deep breaths? Because we did hear in his chief complaint that he had left side pleurisy. By the way, I just want to point out, uh, this is only the second time our discussants have proposed a specific unifying diagnosis. The first you remember uh, being tuberculosis. It's actually very notable. We haven't heard many specific diagnoses at all, period. Aside from the early thought of pericardial effusion by Dr. Stern, in a brief consideration of TB and TB-like symptoms earlier, I feel like if this was a resident report, there would be a long differential diagnosis on the whiteboard by now. Yeah. I mean, it could just be an artifact of the setting, Cindy. It's highly academic. There are two co-discussants. Uh, maybe they don't want to tip their hand to us or to each other and feel foolish. Or maybe this is just a natural reaction when you're presented with minimal data. Again, though, this is something that has been found in formal studies. It's been observed that expert clinicians tend to have only a small number of working hypotheses active at a given time. Yes, that's true. Um, though I, I don't think that there, this observation has um, necessarily yet been explained. Is it purely involuntary? Does this just reflect limitations in, in working memory? Or is this actually a semi-conscious strategy that experts adopt? Do they constantly reevaluate the top diagnoses on their differential? Is this a way of economizing cognitive, uh, you know, their cognitive bandwidth? I, I, don't, I don't know. And I'm not saying necessarily that uh, we ought to be purposely restricting our, our differential. Um, but certainly when in resident report, we write down that long 25, 30 item differential diagnosis on the chalkboard, uh, it's, that's not an accurate representation of what's going on, at least what's going on in the expert clinician's mind. It's more of an academic exercise, or as Dr. Cern had, had said earlier, perhaps a, a roadmap, a, a map of, of roads traveled, of, of thoughts thought. Data point number five, the patient has bilateral leg swelling. There's no erythema, there's no edema, and there's no tenderness to palpation. I'm going to anchor on what Dr. Stern said earlier. Could this be pericardial disease? Hard to hard pressed to put the palpable pain that he has. Um, but if it were to be constricted pericarditis or, or pericardial effusion affecting output, we would have expected to see some JVD. That's right. And we don't see that at all. Um, so it's very helpful, again, coming back to the anatomic process of thinking about how could this individual have um, lower extremity edema in the absence of right-sided heart failure. You said, what did you say? Lower extremity what? Edema. Yeah, he said no edema. I thought I heard. It's leg swelling. Leg swelling without edema. No, thank you. So, edema. No, no, no. But again, that's, you know, it's one of those things that you hear that and there's not a whole lot of things that come to mind when you say leg swelling, mm -hmm. no edema, mm -hmm. right? I mean, there's two things that immediately pop to my head, and there's probably more because Patrick's better than I am at this stuff, but, but uh, and why he called me Dr. Stern, I'm really not sure. Um, uh, it's like so respectful. Just because I'm the oldest person in the room doesn't mean that I deserve the respect your of hand. Yeah, right? <laughs> the first thing that always comes to my mind, and maybe it's because people always forget it, is thyroid disease, right? Is, is this... Uh, is this hypothyroidism and this is really doughy edema with you know, edema that's not edema that's really from thyroid disease. 
um, which, you know, I like because it fits some other elements. The thing the other is like a DVT, the bilateral DVT, which is really weird, but you've got some sort of abdominal complaint going on. And so for him to have some sort of obstructive something, I would expect that to be, uh, I would expect that to be edematous. Um, but, you know, DVT is probably early. It could cause swelling. You could just have fat legs. Yes. <laughs> Lipedema. I like that. Lipedema or lymphedema. Which one? <laughs> I don't know. What else do you? What else does that trigger for you? You're, you're right. I, I was not listening, so my my data collection process is faulty right there. Uh, just to interject here, Cindy. I know that he's being a little bit tongue in cheek. Data collection process is faulty. Sounds like a computer error message. But knowing Dr. Cox, he's deliberately modeling uh, what I think is a very important metacognitive skill here, which is diagnosing one's own diagnostic processes and diagnostic errors. Hmm. Right. I mean, simply recognizing you made a diagnostic error is half the battle. I mean, it does require conscious follow-up and humility. But equally important is localizing lesion. Where did I go wrong? Right. Did, was it that I made a faulty assumption when evaluating one of my hypotheses? Was it that there was a gap in my knowledge about a particular disease or a particular test? Did I misinterpret the data? Or, uh, as in this case, and as happens all too frequently in the real world, did I simply not gather the correct data? So with that mistake cleared up, Dr. Cox considers a few more hypotheses. It would be important for me to examine and see if there are other signs of portal hypertension, whether it be from a venous occlusion uh, below the diaphragm in the liver, whether it be from uh, cirrhosis, you know, whether uh, his symptoms, the, the focality of his pain to me does not fit with how I think about hypothyroid or myxedematous process. Could he have retroperitoneal uh, a cancer or something that's leading to progressive lymphedema in his lower extremities? Sure, but I, I would expect it to be a little weeping, and we're not hearing that. Um, the, it would expect to be much more chronic. We haven't heard anything about him reporting his legs have been swelling over a period of time. So that, that those are thoughts that I have. It hasn't really helped me formulate a conclusive next diagnostic step, so to speak. Um, but I am thinking more anatomically as we've heard this. Where are you in terms of diagnoses? Because I heard you throw a bunch of things out. Are you are you at a place where you think about diagnoses? Or are you still like in the, I want more data before I begin to come up with a list sort of thing? I'm thinking, so uh, coming back to this idea, it sounds like heart failure without right-sided heart failure. I'm thinking of processes below the diaphragm that can lead to swelling of his lower extremities. The focality of his pain to me makes me think about a mass. You mean the discomfort on palpation? Correct, yeah. And not the exertion. I think that, and this is again coming back to like our experiences in hearing and seeing cases, is that anemia can lead to dyspnea on exertion. Valvular processes can lead to dyspnea on exertion. Pulmonary hypertension can lead to dyspnea on exertion. Um, uh, Neuromuscular problems can lead to dyspnea on exertion. Myopathies can lead to dyspnea on exertion. So while we jumped to the young man with progressive chest pain relieved with exertion thinking about coronary artery disease, I'm thinking much more about that being a secondary process uh, perhaps going on in his abdomen right now. All right. The sixth and last data point is CBC. He is severely anemic with a hemoglobin of 3.4. The MCV is 58. Meanwhile, his white count is slightly elevated at 12. There's a mild neutrophilia, uh, 78% neutrophils. The remainder of the differential is unremarkable, and his platelet count is normal at 335. I think we have a reason why he, to explain a symptom, 
Uh, that being his subacute to chronic progressive dyspnea, his hemoglobin is three. I mean, it doesn't. We don't know what it was three months ago, but how? Why does he have a hemoglobin of three? Is the more relevant question now. And why isn't he more symptomatic? I mean, uh, so, three is three is but, really low, right? But I think that's a great point. So that to me argues that this process has been going a lot longer, right? So he passed his stress test, yeah. Right? So uh, and that he this has been going on for a long enough time that he can upregulate the counter-regulatory hormones to the reduction in his red blood cell mass. So this is a, I'm, I'm now viewing his, that's a great point, like I triggered, like this is now a, to me, a chronic process. He didn't go from seven to three overnight. And the MCV of 58, I mean, that's just, to me, that's the chronicity that you're talking about. And there's likely to be some iron deficiency as a part of this. That's where I am. And so what would you want as your next steps? Uh, imaging. Is what I am interested in, but I think you're right. And then would look in his abdomen for any mass lesions, primary splenic processes, diffuse retroperitoneal adenopathy. Yeah, so, or something. You know, again, I wrote in portal vein thrombosis at some point in here. Abdominal imaging is where I was heading yeah. as well. I wouldn't be surprised if somebody wanted to get a scan for DVT or somebody else wanted to get echo. All right, Cindy. So that's all the information that we'll be uh, hearing about this case. Just to recap our data points, 47-year-old man, immigrant from Mexico, progressive exertional chest pain with a pleuritic component, epigastric and left upper quadrant tenderness on exam, bilateral leg swelling, and severe microcytic anemia. And our discussions have reached something close to a consensus. So do you agree with him? What's your diagnosis? What would you do next? Finalize your thoughts and we'll compare notes after the break. So Zhang, do you want to walk us through the resolution of this case? Yeah, sure, Cindy. So the next test uh, in the real world was indeed a CT of the chest and abdomen, which showed a large mass that uh, appeared to arise from the stomach and uh, abutted the spleen and left hemidiaphragm. It wasn't timed as a PE study, but nevertheless, it showed multiple left-sided lobar pulmonary emboli, as well as what looked like pulmonary infarcts. And that led to a venous duplex study of the legs, which confirmed bilateral lower extremity DVTs. His EGD showed a large friable mass in the gastric fundus uh, with stigmata of recent bleeding, and the biopsy confirmed gastric adenocarcinoma. That's unfortunate. Our discussions were pretty much right on the money. Yeah, yeah, they were. I was wondering, this seems like a solid bread and butter medicine case. Is there any particular reason you chose it to uh, present to our two discussants? Yes. You know, I, again, I, I do think it, there is a, a challenge inherent to this case when it's presented stepwise, maybe retrospectively, it, you know, the diagnosis, you know, um, uh, seems straightforward. But one thing that I thought was striking about this case is how throughout the course of his illness, the patient never had a complaint of abdominal pain or nausea or vomiting, weight loss, early satiety, any of that. I mean, he was tender if you mashed on his belly, but he had no abdominal pain per se. And he consistently denied melanohermetichesia. Instead, he presented with uh, purely with secondary phenomena of his cancer, right? Secondary myocardial ischemia from severe anemia induced by his chronic GI bleed. And I think he had pleurisy from, from his pulmonary emboli, which might have contributed to the acceleration of his chest pain symptoms. Got it. 
Well, it's worth pointing out that gastrointestinal cancers are amongst the most strongly associated with thromboembolism, especially pancreas and colorectal. But gastric is no exception. Right.、Uh, you might remember Trousseau's sign from medical school: migratory superficial thrombophlebitis, which、uh, is associated with and sometimes heralds the onset of cancer before it's apparent. Something I didn't know.、Uh, apparently, Trousseau diagnosed himself with his own sign before dying of gastric cancer that appeared two years later. Oh,、uh, I, I didn't know that. I yeah, I didn't know that either. Probably because we、uh, perennially skipped medical Jeopardy. <laughs> But anyway,、uh, reflecting back, I I don't think the diagnosis of gastric cancer would have been particularly high on my differential、uh, were it not for the finding of severe anemia. At least. Initially, if I were to have seen the patient in the ED, so it's just interesting to me to see how Dr. Cox triggered that diagnosis of gastric cancer much earlier. Remember,、uh, it was after the fourth data point. At, at that point, all he knew was that this was a middle-aged man from Mexico with chest pain and epigastric tenderness. Impressive. Something else that stands out to me is that this patient's pretty young. Yeah, and honestly, he's. By no means the first patient I've had、um, who's been in his or her forties or even thirties、uh, to be admitted with a, a new diagnosis of of gastric cancer out of the blue. I mean, I remember reading in, in medical school gastric cancer uncommon in the United States. Perhaps this is just a a bias of of me working at a public hospital,、um, but still very sobering.、Hmm. I'm curious. Um, do you think this patient should have had screening endoscopy? Right. As a Hispanic immigrant from a region with high prevalence of gastric cancer. No, that's certainly a question I think that that came up、uh, for me as I was reflecting back on the case. So, in some high risk countries like Japan and Korea, it's standard to screen everyone. And while that's always been controversial, even in those countries, there is now observational data to suggest that. This strategy improves early detection and improves mortality. So、uh, it's probably not unreasonable、uh, here in the you know U.S. where you and I practice to consider offering screening to those patients who have immigrated from one of these high prevalence regions: East Asia, Latin America. Well, the thing is, selective screening in the immigrant population is not something that's being fully studied. Whether to do it, whether it's cost effective,、um, how to do it—I mean, these are all areas of active research right now. Do you start at age forty or fifty? Do you scope or use an upper GI series? Do you repeat it after this many number of years after the initial scope, or do you only do it if the initial scope was abnormal? Yeah, exactly. There just aren't formal guidelines in the United States, which means. As an outpatient provider, you're going to have to decide on your own, or or with your patient,、uh, whether and how、uh, you're going to do that screening. And just to be clear, we're only talking about the first generation of immigrants here.、Uh, population studies、uh, in Japanese immigrants to the U.S. from the、uh, mid to late 20th century showed that、uh, over subsequent generations after immigration, gastric cancer risk decreases to the baseline rate of Caucasians. So presumably, some Early environmental exposure or exposures are playing a significant role, arguably much more of a role than genetics per se in、uh, gastric carcinogenesis. All right, listeners. So 
that's about it for this episode. I, uh, I hope you've enjoyed listening to our two bosses struggle with the case, uh, certainly as much as Cindy and I did. I hope you'll join us next time as we continue experimenting with different case formats. Next episode's twist, one discussion, the multiple cases. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And again, a shout out to HumanDX for hosting an interactive version of this case, which we hope some of you solved. Check out next week's Global Morning Report on their app or website for other great chest pain cases. Symptom-based learning, just like Dr. Stern said. Oh, speaking of which, Core IM finally has a website of its own. Yes, <laughs> that's right. Come visit us on coreimpodcast.com and subscribe for the latest updates. And remember, if you have a case you'd like to submit for discussion, or you know someone you'd like to come on and hear as a discussant, or if you're interested in developing and hosting an episode, please, please get in touch with us. Send us an email at coreimpodcast at gmail.com. We're also on Facebook and Twitter at, at coreimpodcast. Thank you again to Dr. Patrick Cox and Dr. David Stern for weighing in on this episode, along with our Core IM colleagues Shreya Trevedi, Marty Freed, Amy O, and of course, an honorable mention as always to Dr. Stephen Liu. In case it needs to be said, opinions expressed in this podcast are our own and do not represent the opinions of NYU or other affiliated institutions, nor should they be construed as medical advice. Please reason forward responsibly. Thank you for joining us. With Core IM, I'm Cindy Fain. And I'm John Huang. See you next time.